Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, my name is Tommy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Mars Hill. Um, I'm predominantly at the Mobile campus, um, but this is home to me. You guys see me um, play drums here usually when I'm here, and this is this is my home. And so I'm so excited to be able to actually be here this morning to be able to teach a passage that has impacted me so much in working through it and learning it to be able to teach this morning. Now, this is going to piggyback on what we have already been talking about, especially what we talked about with last week. You know, we kind of set the cultural context of what's going on in this story about the woman in, uh, that comes to the well and Jesus is there. We learned that Jesus is, uh, is there baptizing with his disciples. We found out that he's not actually the one submerging folks, but he's the one authorizing this baptism. And last week we found out that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptizing, and Jesus, for whatever reason, we don't know why, but he leaves there because he's basically going to avoid this confrontation. We know uh, that when the Pharisees found out that John the Baptist was baptizing, they went and started asking him questions. They confronted him about it. And for whatever reason, the Bible says that when Jesus heard this, he left. And then the Bible says something really interesting. It said that he had to travel through Samaria. And we talked last week about how this just really wasn't the case, that there were three routes to be able to get to the north, and he was already on the preferred trade route to the east, and he could have just traveled on up. But instead, he came back west and went through the center to go to Samaria. It would be kind of like after church today if we were to all say, hey, let's go to Lambert's to eat. And somebody said, well, let's take the interstate to get there. No, like, just go there, right? And so you're going way out of the way to get to the same spot. And so we find that Jesus went out of his way to actually go through Samaria to get to Galilee. And what we need to understand is that this word, this phrase that he had to travel, that he must travel, we need to understand that it's the Bible saying he was compelled to travel because we find out that there is a divine appointment at this well in Samaria with this woman. And we also learned last week that as Jesus is traveling, that he's going from Jerusalem to Judea, and now he's to Samaria, and he's setting this pattern that we're going to be reminded of in Acts 1-8 as believers, that the gospel is to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then to the othermost parts of the world. And so Jesus is laying out that pattern for us. And we also have to remember, in context of what we're going to learn today, the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It's very important that these two are put together for a purpose. We're there together, and they're there together so that we can compare and contrast these. And so remember, as a quick refresher of the story of Nicodemus, he's part of the ruling council, that he's the elite, that he is the religious man, that he is the ethical man. And Jesus tells him, no one can see the kingdom unless he is born again. And this would have just shocked Nicodemus. Wait, I was born a Jew. I'm good, right? Oh, I'm part of the religious elite. I'm good, right? And Jesus said, no, it is for all who will be born again. And that would have been shocking to Nicodemus also. That, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that non-Jews can be born again too? Like everybody? And then it goes on to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And when I read the book of John, what's basically happening to me when I see this is that now John is beginning to explain who the world is. Who is it that God loves? Who is this world? And that's where we are today in John chapter 4. So let's dive into this, but let's first go to the Lord and ask his blessings on this moment. God, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your word that can somehow be so convicting and so encouraging at the exact same moment. And so, God, I pray that this morning that your spirit speak, that you get me out of the way. And, Lord, that our hearts be open and receptive to your word. Lord, let us understand what you are showing us through this passage. And let us stand amazed as a result of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
<laughs> now, we're not going to read all of this together today because this is quite easily the longest passage we've ever tried to teach at once in Marseille history. Um, and so we're going to take it block by block. And so stick with me. The story will all come together. We're just going to do it in small pieces, okay? So John chapter 4, starting with verse 6. It says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now it's important for us to understand this reference of this noon hour that's there. If we look at it at our reckoning, the Bible says the sixth hour, but this is high noon. And so what this should begin to do is make us start asking questions. Oh, why would someone go at high noon to draw water, right? It's going to be insanely hot. Could you guys imagine having to walk miles yesterday at like 1230 or 1 o'clock and draw water and then take it back to your home? It would have been absolutely terrible. We would have much preferred to go very early in the morning or very late in the evening. And so the first question we need to ask is, is why on earth is this woman going at noon? And the second thing that we need to ask this text is, why is she alone? If we understand the culture and we understand the times, many times women traveled in groups for safety. It wasn't at all uncommon for a woman to go draw the water. Like that's, that's part of what the women did on, on the daily basis to get the water that was needed. Even in, we're going to see in other parts of the Bible that they would actually draw water for the flocks and things like that. So it's not unusual that she would be there drawing water. It's unusual that she would be there at noon, and it's unusual that she would be there alone. And this isolation is going to play into the story. At this point, we don't understand why she's alone. We don't know if she's withdrawn to herself. We don't know if she's been ostracized by a group of people. We don't know why, but we need to set this in the back of our head for Scripture to answer these questions for us later. Now, Leon Morris actually speaks to this. He brings up a few of the reasons that we might see her there alone. Leon Morris says, the six hours noon by our reckoning, which seems to be an unusual time for a woman to be drawing out water. Sunset seems to have been the favorite hour. However, we should not overlook the fact that Josephus speaks of the damsels that Moses helped in Exodus 2.15 are coming out to draw water at noon. So there are instances of this. Perhaps more curious is that this woman would have come to this well at all, for there was plentiful water near her home. Now, what does he mean in saying this? Well, there were about 80 wells around the city, and many of them much closer. And so she's coming to a well much farther from her house than some of the others. And so that's going to make us ask another question. And, and so he says it may be that the water at Jacob's well was thought to be of better quality, being so deep it goes below the water table. It may have yielded better water than shallower wells. So there's one of your hypotheses. More likely, there was some superstitious veneration for a hallowed place by association with the great patriarch. In other words, because this great man in our history dug it, you know, maybe we can be venerated somehow by drinking this water. But he says this, but the woman had a bad reputation, and the explanation may be very simple. She chose that time and that place to avoid other women. And so this story really starts sad. We, we see the story of a woman that from hurt, from whatever reason, she's going to this well alone for the purpose of being by herself. She doesn't want the group of women to travel with her. She doesn't want to go to one of the other wells closer to her home that other people may be at. She doesn't want to be around these people. For whatever reason, she wants to be alone. And this is heart-wrenching. The next thing that we see in the story is that Jesus asked this Samaritan woman for a drink. Now, this is interesting, and it plays into why the parenthetical is there also. But Jesus was sitting at the well with nothing to draw the water from the well with. You guys understand that a well is only helpful if you can get the water out of it, right? No, I mean, Jesus is sitting there. I surely wish someone would come, come along and, and bring something that I could get some water. Now, travelers in this time would have traveled with something to draw water from. It, it would be essential because, again, you walk up to a well, you need something to draw water out. Now, the question is, was Jesus just terribly ill-prepared and had never traveled before and had no idea what was going on? Or is there something else at play here? Well, there's obviously something else at play here. The disciples had gone to do what? Went to get food. 
And so who probably would have had the drawing bucket with them since they were traveling as a large group going into the city to get food and come back? They would have. And so when we look at this, we need to make sure that we don't over-spiritualize the story. We're really bad at doing that sometimes. Well, Jesus wasn't really thirsty. He just wanted to tell her who he was. No, Jesus was thirsty. Make sure that we grab a hold to the physical of this story because if we don't, we're not going to understand the importance of the spiritual that is to come. Jesus genuinely needed a drink of water. He genuinely needed someone to help him draw the water because he had no way to do it. And he was genuinely tired and thirsty. Phillips says this, Jesus started with a simple request that sparked a connection. This is such an interesting story to me because we see the Messiah submit himself to someone else for them to minister to his physical needs. Do you see that? That Jesus starts off by asking her for something. See, Jesus needs something from her. He needs water. He's tired. The Bible is very, very clear that he's weary from the travels. We need to remember the humanity of Christ also. Yes, he is 100% God. Yes, he is 100% man. Tommy, do you fully understand that? No, I don't. But he is. And so understand that this physical need is a real need. He is genuinely thirsty. J.C. Ryle says this. Simple as the request may seem, it opened the door for a spiritual conversation. It threw a bridge across the gulf which lay between her and him. And it led to the conversion of a soul. So Jesus being thirsty, he took this physical thing and he connected it back to a spiritual truth. So from the perspective of Jesus, think about this a minute. He's thirsty. And he's opening a conversation with this woman that's going to lead to something. But what is her perspective of this? Well, we see her perspective in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. You guys remember the teaching from last week, if you were here. When we talk about animosity, when we talk about ethnic elitism, like this is it, this is the apex. These two groups hated each other. If you remember from last week, even the Samaritans, they offered to help the Jews rebuild the temple when the Jews were allowed to come back home after the Assyrians had taken over and dispersed them. They were at at a point of a future of that, allowed to come back home. And they came back home and the Samaritans said, we'll help you rebuild the temple too because we're part Jew. And the Jews said, no, we don't want your unclean money. We don't want you to defile our temple by helping us rebuild it. Guys, this is just a whole new level of nastiness between these two people. To the point that the Samaritans built their own place of worship, the Jews built their own place of worship, and there was no crossing there. These people were separate from each other. They hated each other. And this was a really big deal. Now, a lot of commentators start trying to get into the attitude of the woman. And I always find this interesting because these are the questions that I like to ask too. A lot of the commentators said that she was speaking with humility, saying, how is it that you, a Jew, would want to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And she's really inquiring about this. She really wants to know. And then you go to the other side, and you have people like John Calvin, who reads it this way. How is it that you, a Jew, you want to drink from me, a Samaritan? Oh, well, you didn't need us when you rebuilt the temple oh you don't need us because you don't pass through our city oh so now that you're thirsty you need me and so john calvin like makes this woman very bitter and very sarcastic and very nasty and bitey back and the truth of the matter is either or could be true because when we go through her past we're going to see things that could have hardened her or she may be speaking at the point of humility but the truth of the matter is is that her attitude and response at this point doesn't matter what matters is her astonishment either way she's astounded either she's like put off by oh wait this guy's asking me for something i need to 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 be you know snippy back and i need to be sarcastic back or either wow he's asking me something either way she is amazed and if we try to start reading too much into this text we're going to miss the point of the fact that she's amazed why and how do we know this is the thrust of the passage because of that little parenthetical for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans the reason that John put that there 
was so that we would understand her mindset. We have to put ourselves in her shoes. We need to be amazed also in this time and in this culture that Jesus would interact with this woman because Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Now, why would this be so amazing? Well, the reason it would be so amazing is because uh, Philip says that there are three barriers that Jesus crossed here. And these are big barriers of the time, and we need to make sure we keep these in the back of our mind as we move through this verse. The barrier that separated the Samaritans from the Jews was the first one. We've explored that. The second one was the barrier that separated men from women. Now, last week at the Mobile campus, I dug into this a good bit, and Jack didn't, uh, didn't take that perspective quite as much here. But the truth of the matter is still that there is a separation in this time between men and women. To the degree of this, guys, we have references of the religious elite praying this. Are you ready? Thank God that I'm not a woman, and thank God that I'm not a Samaritan. Just, just think about that just a minute. <laughs> oh, the Samaritans are terrible. Thank God I'm not a woman too, though. It, 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 in this culture, we're seeing these two major hurdles leaped. There is no way that a Jewish leader, that an Orthodox Jew would be caught dead speaking to a woman in public. And Jesus is not just speaking to a woman. He's speaking to a Samaritan woman. So just think about how taboo this would be. And then the last one is the man-made religious rule of not sharing uh, utensils with Samaritans. They believed this. You know that in the Old Testament, we see all of these laws and these rules that can make a person unclean as we read through the Bible, right? They believed that if you were to share a cup with a Samaritan, that you would be equally unclean as all of those things that God said in, in Torah that could make you unclean. They believed that if you shared a cup with this person, that you'd be unclean. Talk about prejudice. Talk about separation. And in all of these things, Jesus walks through these barriers and ministers to this woman that he wasn't supposed to minister to. Culture told him he shouldn't do it. His background would have said, don't do it. The religious elite around him would have been, see, look, he is a sinner. Look at what he's doing. But yet, Jesus does it anyway. Verse 10 says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 10 is the point of this whole story. Verse 10 is also the point of the book of John, honestly, if we want to break it down, because verse 10 points to the fact that there is a gift and there is a giver. That there is this gift of God. That, that is this eternal life, that is this well of living water. And it points to that, and it talks about Jesus is the one who provides it. Jesus is the one who gives it, and he tells the Samaritan woman, <clears throat> hey, I know that I'm asking you for water, but if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for it instead. There's a gift that I have that you can't achieve any other way. And so we see the gift and the giver. And when we look at the purpose of the book of John, according to John 20, verse 31, the Bible says that he writes to basically point to Christ as being the Son of God and that in pointing to that, that you may believe, that you may have life in his name. And that's what John is pointing to, is this fact that Jesus is the gift and the giver. Now, this is kind of the same thing that we see happening in the story of Nicodemus when you think about it. We're seeing a physical thing teaching a spiritual lesson. With the story of Nicodemus, he's talking about new birth, right? And you guys remember us working through that? Nicodemus says, hey, how is it possible that a person could be born again? Are you supposed to enter your mother's womb again? How does this all work? I don't understand. My mind is blown. And so Nicodemus is thinking all physical, and Jesus is like, no, no, I'm teaching a deeper truth here. All must be born again. He's doing the same thing with the woman. He's saying, look, you would ask me for water. And she's like, what are you talking about? You needed me to get water. I don't know what you're talking about. And so we're seeing in both these stories, Nicodemus and the woman at the well, understanding what Jesus is trying to communicate to them in a way different than what was being communicated. Look at this. Verse 11 through 15 is going to talk about this dialogue between the two. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us this world and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And, and so notice in this, she is still understanding things physically, that she's still understanding it differently than how Jesus is presenting it. And what Jesus does in this passage is really interesting. He points to the fact that she is ignorant of a few things. Worsby says this, Jesus points out to her that she's ignorant of three important facts. <clears throat> Who he was, what he had to offer, and how she could receive it. See, she doesn't understand what this story is about yet. She doesn't understand what Jesus is trying to communicate to her. She doesn't understand that there's something beyond this water that's actually going on here. She's ignorant to these things, and Jesus is going to begin to reveal these things to her. <clears throat> now, this concept of water and water being something symbolic of something bigger than just getting something to drink is not an uncommon one. As we go through antiquity, um, water is always communicated as being something great, something completely necessary, something that satisfies, something that's needed. Uh, when we look in the Old Testament, it's, God is referred to as living water. We see Torah, or the law, being referred to as living water. We see in the New Testament, remember, uh, Jesus at the Feast of Sukkot, or, um, <coughs> or Tabernacles, is talking about him being living water, and from him, uh, wells Will, will spring from you. And so this is common language. But it's also common outside of Judaism. If we look back at philosophy and we look back at some of these thought processes that were in place at the time, we see that even the idea of logos, word, philosophy, wisdom, is said to be a spring from which all wisdom comes from and that it's a spring that can satisfy we see in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2.13, Psalm 36.9, Isaiah 55.1, all of these places talk about living water as being something greater than just this thing that you can drink. Beasley Murray says this, the absolute necessity of water for life caused it to become a wide-ranging symbol in religious thought. <clears throat> So we see that this is something bigger that most people would interpret as something bigger than what's there. Now, this also should point us back to the wedding at Cana. You guys remember that story? That they run out of wine, um, Jesus comes in and says, hey, fill these um, jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing up with water, um, and they're transformed miraculously into wine. And then what is said it's said that you've saved the best wine to last. And, and so it's this idea that there's something here that fulfills, but we're going to see to a greater degree it fulfilled in Christ. We talked about how wine represents joy in the Old Testament and how the joy in Christ is so much greater than anything that this world could offer. And this is the same story being told to this woman. I'm thirsty, you're thirsty, we all need something to drink, but there's going to be something greater than this that could fulfill so much more than you could ever possibly imagine. Verse 16 says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. This woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. All of us would kind of have that response if we're sitting down and somebody starts telling us stuff about ourselves. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Um, and we didn't tell anybody that. We didn't talk about those things, but yet they're being told to us. Now, as people reading this, as human beings, like I mentioned before, we always want to find out her attitude. We all kind of want to know the situation that got us here. Why does she, why she had five husbands? Why is she now living with someone who's not her husband? Now, our mind, because of our traditional thought, immediately jumps to, well, this is a woman uh, uh, that has committed adultery many times. <clears throat> and, and that's kind of the way that we think. But understand, there are lots of things that could have got her here. Maybe, just maybe, 
um, that she got uh, married and was married to the absolute love of her life. And he died. And because of the culture of the time, maybe she spent the rest of her life trying to find someone to take care of her and fulfill that need. Maybe she's been one that's always gravitated to the wrong person. Remember in this time period, a woman couldn't divorce a man. A man divorced a woman. Uh, a man gave her a writ of divorce. So maybe she's been in a situation where she's just been a very, been a very terrible situation many times, and she's been cast aside. <clears throat> but because the Bible doesn't speak to that, I don't think that we're supposed to dig too much into that. What we are supposed to understand is this, that there are two things that we should draw from this. Number one is we need to understand how she would have been viewed in that time. And the second thing is what was her need? See, in our 21st century Western mind, we can't quite wrap our minds around how she would have been viewed. If I were to tell you uh, to raise your hand in this room, if you know anyone that's been married five times, there would be hands go up in this room. And then I would say, tell me if you think that person's terrible. Leave your hand up. And I would hope all of your hands would go back down. Um, in our culture, these things are part of what we do. If I were to say, raise your hand in here, if you know someone that is living with someone that they're not married to or lived with someone, cohabitated, if I want to use the correct term, um, before they got married to try things out to make sure that they were able to be married, uh, many of us would raise our hands. First off, that is complete sin, complete backwards of what God intended. But in our culture, we don't completely ostracize people who do those things. We don't cast them aside. We don't look at them and say, oh, you can't talk to me because of this. In her culture, that's where she was. She was cast aside. And it was always the woman that was looked down on, <clears throat> never the man. Why? Because he probably had a reason to leave her. That was, that was the idea. In this time, I'm not making this up. A man could literally divorce his wife for not fulfilling her duties at home. And what does that mean? I don't know. If your duty was to make perfect toast that's not burnt and you burnt it one day, I can write you a writ of divorce. I'm not making this up. And so understand that in that time, she would have been tossed aside. She would have been an outcast. And we begin to see why she probably would have gone to this well alone. I, I can't be around those people because all that they're going to do is talk bad about me. Or I can't be around those people because if I show up at the well, they're all just going to leave anyway. I don't want to go through that humiliation. I'm tired of that. I'm hurt. I, I can't do this anymore. It's better for me to just be by myself than it is to go through all of that ridicule. And so understand the first thing we need to know is how she would have been viewed. The next is what is her need. This is important. Either she was mad, she was bitter, she was hurt, she was humiliated. However we want to frame this, we need to understand the one truth that's here. She is absolutely miserable. That's the truth of the matter, is that she is miserable. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus, in asking this question, is bringing to the forefront of her mind her desperate need for something. He's bringing up why she's miserable. He's bringing up her past. He's bringing up her present situation. And he's doing it so that she can understand that nothing's ever fulfilled me before. <clears throat> and this is where Jesus is going to begin to reveal who he is. See, it, it's only once we realize our need <laughs> that we can truly begin to be ministered to. And that's what Jesus is doing here. A.W. Pink says this, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's perfectly acquainted with every detail of life being in heaven, on earth, and hell. He knows what's in the darkness. Nothing can escape his notice. Nothing can be hid from him. His knowledge is perfect. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows everything. John 2.24 speaks to this, but Jesus on his part didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what they were thinking. He knew how twisted their thoughts were, and so he didn't entrust himself to them. Now, what's fascinating is that so often we look at this as a negative. And by a negative, I mean in a negative sense. We tell people, hey, God knows every sin that you've ever committed and you ever will, and he loved you anyway. Is that truth? That is absolute truth. But let me tell you this also. 
He also knows you every single way, knows everything you've ever done. And how does he apply this? Because he knows exactly what you need also. It's not just that he knows what you've done and loves you in spite of it. He loves you so much and knows you so much that he knows exactly what you need. He knows your deepest need in a way that nothing else could ever know, that your spouse can't know, that your parents can't know, that God knows you in a way to satisfy your deepest longing. And he can do so completely. And this also points to the fact of what this story is all about. Again, it's about the gift and the giver. Now, this is where we really begin to start getting into some application here. Uh, we really begin getting into some stories that are going to really begin to impact us because we can begin to connect with where she is. We can find no satisfaction in this world. It's not there. It doesn't exist. There's not a way to be satisfied in this world, and that's what Jesus is pointing to. Jesus is pointing to, hey, you have been, uh, however it uh, panned out, You've looked to all of these men to take care of you. It hasn't happened, has it? You're still unsatisfied. There's a guy by the name of George Sanders. <clears throat> he was once a leading man in Hollywood. He had a degree from Cambridge University, and he was married at one time to Zsa Zsa Gabor. Does anybody in here know who that is? You've got to be me or older or anybody else like, who's that? Go home and look her up. Um, but he was married to her. He had absolutely everything. He had wealth. He had notoriety. He had everything that we could want in this world. But instead of living in that, he killed himself. Here's what he wrote in his suicide note. You want to get depressed real fast? Listen to this. Somebody that had everything wrote this. I'm committing suicide because I'm bored. I feel I've lived long enough. I leave you all in your sweet little cesspool, and I wish you good luck. Somebody who had absolutely everything. C.S. Lewis addresses this. He says that it's an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. <clears throat> what does that mean? Is that we find something that gives us pleasure, <clears throat> then we crave that thing more and more and more, and each time we get it, it brings us less pleasure. And this applies to everything in life except Disney World, because we know every time we go, it's just as magical as the first. But everything else in life will do that. It's like we want a car, and we, we desire this car, and we got to have this car. And we say, why do we have to have this car? Because I have to have this car. This car is awesome. And the first time you get in it, you're riding with the windows down, the sunroof open, the radio blasting, the seat back, your hair blowing in the wind, arm out. Yeah, this is it. And then the next day you get in it, man, this is still a really cool car. I like this car. You drive up and you park in the most visible spot when you get to work and you get out, shut the door, look back, bleep, bleep, and you walk in. You're getting that attention. Two years later, you're driving the same car. Now it's got some rock nicks in the windshield. It's got love bugs stuck, stuck on the front of it that you can't get off. Who knows what those things are made of? They're like glue. And so they're stuck all over the top of it. You ain't even washed it in like four weeks. Why? Because you just don't care. I said four weeks, and some of you are like, your car gets washed that often? Um, but yeah, and so, it, but what's happened is it's the same thing. The same item is there, but guess what? Your joy is diminishing. Let me give you another example. There's a guy by the name of Tom Brady, the goat. Do not sacrifice me outside if you're not a fan of his. Uh, the greatest of all time. He's the guy. When he was 27 years old, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes. You can look this up. I promise I'm telling you the truth. Please go find it. He's interviewed, and he says this. I'm 27 years old, and I've won three Super Bowl rings. Most people would say that I've achieved everything, that this life is what it's supposed to be, but to be honest with you, this isn't all that it's cracked up to be. I still find myself wanting more. And the interviewer asks this. What is that thing that you want? And Tom Brady has this look on his face where he just looks crushed with kind of this half smile, almost tear-eyed, and says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Understand that the most successful people that we could ever possibly think of are going to find these things that they measure their success in as empty and falling short, absent God. 
that house that you want so bad down the street. Guess what? If you get to the chance that you are able to buy it, praise God. I'm glad that you got the house of your dream. But you want me to tell you what you're going to do in that house? You're going to eat, and you're going to brush your teeth, and you're going to take a shower, and you're going to go to bed, and you're going to sit there and watch TV. You want me to tell you the same five things you do in the house that you're in right now? You are going to take a shower and brush your teeth and eat and uh, the same stuff. You're going to do the same stuff in that house. And there's going to be a day that you walk in that house and you don't even think about the house anymore. You lost the feeling the first time you walked in. You don't have it anymore. You walk in and throw your keys in the basket there on the foyer table. Those of you who want to keep up with them and don't get your wife to do it for you. But you throw them in the foyer table and you walk in and you don't even think about the house that you're in anymore. Why? Because there's no pleasure left in it anymore. All the pleasure has been sucked out of it. Because you're like this woman. You're searching for pleasure somewhere other than God. You're searching for fulfillment in something other than God. You're searching for true joy and content and peace and hope in something that's not God. And guess what? It's always going to fail. Now, if we want to go to the real authority on this issue that can tell you the truth about everything, the genie in Aladdin says this. I've been doing this a long time. No amount of money or power will ever satisfy you. And that's just truth. It's just truth. You're always going to think that you want more. And then when you get everything, you're going to look around and say, well, what is this? What does it matter? Now, understand that this is not Christ saying that physical things are bad. I mean, he just asked for a glass of water. He genuinely needs water. He's tired. He's not saying the water is evil. Don't drink it. No, please drink water. You're going to need that, okay? But understand, he's not saying that these things are bad. He's not saying that your family is bad. He's not saying that your house and your car is bad. He's not saying that the clothes that you wear, the shoes that you wear are bad. He's not saying necessarily that your ambitions are bad. But what he's saying is that those things will never satisfy. God gives you your family. I'm thankful for my family, but guess what? It's never going to satisfy. And if I'm completely honest with you, as a husband and as a father... I fall into this sin more often than I ever really want to admit. I fall into the sin of finding fulfillment in my wife and my kids and making sure that their life is perfect so often before I consult God. Men, we can't do that. Women, you do the same thing. You find your hope and you find your peace and you find your contentment. Is it, are my kids taken care of? Do they have the lunchbox when they make it to school? Is there enough food in there to eat? Is my husband happy with what I'm doing? Is, is he happy with my job? Are we content in each other? Are my kids enjoying the vacation that they're on? Whatever. And we try to find hope in this. But understand that even those good things like family will end up falling short if we don't have things in the right order and that Christ is first. And that our fulfillment in Christ is first, and as a result, those other things work out below them. The other things work out because we have our life in order. So those things aren't bad, but don't look to them for your fulfillment. Because anything in this world will fall short. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the uh, Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She perceives he's a prophet. He reveals himself to be the Messiah. Don't miss this. Do not miss this. Who does he reveal this to? The half-breed, sinful, messed-up Samaritan woman he says i am the messiah chapter three he's talking with nicodemus you ever hear him say i am the messiah i am he nope see they're in similar situations they're both looking for fulfillment but because god knows us because christ knows us he responds to them as individuals just like he responds to you as individuals that his love is great enough to cover us all but it's intimate enough to be you and him 
see, he responds to Nicodemus and kind of a, just throws up a wall. Well, stop there. You must be born, a bit, born again. So Nicodemus is coming, wanting to ask these questions and wanting to learn this, ma- this material, if you will. And Jesus just stops him and says, nope, you must be born again. This woman comes hurt. This woman comes needing. And Jesus speaks to her gently and reveals himself to be the Messiah. And I love that Jesus revealed himself to this woman with this background in this place. Why? Because like I said before, he's showing us who the world is. He's showing us who he came for. He came for those who think they're good and those who think they're scum of the earth and every single person in between. None of you are outside of the parameters that Jesus came to save. What's interesting too, though, is that the person who thought they were awesome needed saving just as bad as the person who thought that she was dirt. See, it's a beautiful picture. You can never be good enough to not need Christ and you can never be bad enough that Christ won't accept you. Both, they don't exist. We all need Christ. It's not a this person and this person. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. We all need grace. We all need to respond in faith. And that's what's being painted in this picture is our need to respond to him and our need for this gift. Verse 27 starts with the disciples' response to this. I love it. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? As we read through scripture, I almost see like the disciples weirded out sometimes by the stuff that Jesus does. Like you can see them asking questions and wondering things and asking about this. And I can just see them walking up and just freezing. <laughs> Is that a woman? You think she's Samaritan too? Well, what is he? And then one of the other disciples stopping him. No, man, just let it go. Just be Elsa, let it go. Just, he does these things, just let it go. Uh, but it's weird to me that they don't confront him, but they think it. They're like, what's going on? But her response is what's amazing. I love her response. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, come see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. <clears throat> I love that. Her response in just going and telling about the gift and the giver. So there's our story, right? That, that's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And the question is, what application can we take from this? What can we learn from this? What can we walk out of the doors at Mars Hill this morning and apply to our lives? And there's a few things. The first is in evangelism. And we actually have two lessons taught in evangelism. One of them from the woman, and one of them from Jesus. The first one is the woman. I love how she responded to the gospel. She went and told. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me, Tommy, that she didn't go first to school and get a degree in theology so that she could go witness? No, she didn't. She didn't go through evangelism explosion on Sunday night at church and learn how to witness to people. No, she didn't learn the Roman road. Romans wasn't even written yet. No, she didn't. What did she do? She had an encounter with a life-changing Savior that gave her the gift that she was looking for, and she couldn't help but to go tell. As believers, that's our model for evangelism. Don't wait till you're smart enough, because guess what? You're never going to get there. Is that truth? Because everything that you learn, you're going to keep saying, oh, but if I know this, I can tell somebody. What if they ask this question? What if they ask this question? Let me tell you some of the most liberating words in the English language. Are you ready? I don't know. If you can learn that those can literally leave your mouth, it's so liberating. Because so many times people have asked me questions. And I've had to say, I don't know, but all I know is that my life's totally different. All I know is that I'm not the same person that I was. All I know is that I have assuredness in Christ, and so I can't answer your question. I'll look for that, and I'll look that up, and I I hope to know that answer. But all I can tell you is that I've been changed. So I I can't answer your question. All I know is the gift that I've received and who gave it to me. That's all I know. When we look at evangelism, the reason that it's dying is so often, uh, there's some statistics out there on evangelism that's absolutely frightening. But the reason why is because we live in such an academic world where we feel like we have to know everything before we can talk to somebody about it. Don't. She didn't. And what was the response of people to her? They left the town and went back to Jesus. She didn't have all the answers. All that she knew is that she had an encounter 
with the Savior. The second lesson in evangelism comes from Jesus. We already talked about this. Think of the social barriers that this man crossed. He went into Samaria. He was talking to a Samaritan at a well, asking if he could drink from her utensil, and she was a she. Right? And so he's crossing all of these social barriers. And the thing that we need to ask ourselves in this, careful, this gets uncomfortable, what are your prejudices? Do you have any? Is there someone you're unwilling to minister to? Do you look at people in a different income bracket than you and say, I'm not like them? Now, we always think that looks down on somebody, but so often we look at somebody that makes a lot more money than us and in a different income bracket up than us and say, why would they want to talk to me? See, we need to cross these social barriers. We look at people sometimes and say they have a different religious upbringing than me. Maybe they're Muslim. Maybe they're Buddhist. Maybe they're whatever, and I can't talk to them. No, Jesus crossed those social norms. Maybe they have a different language than us. Maybe they have a different amount of pigment in their skin and they look slightly different than us. Guess what? None of us match exactly. And so get over that. Move past those prejudices. Take the gospel into places that it needs to go. Think about this story. Would this woman ever have left Samaria and went to Jerusalem and said, tell me the good news of God and the Messiah that's to come? No, she wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. What happened? The gospel had to go to her. Think of the people in your life that wouldn't be caught dead in here on Sunday morning. That's probably the person that God's compelling you to share the gospel with. The gospel is to go to them. It's to go forth from here. It's to cross barriers. So we learn that from Jesus and evangelism. The next thing that we need to know, and this is so important, is the obvious one. We must find our satisfaction in Christ. Everything else is going to fail you. See, so many people think that when people say stuff like this, they're thinking about eternity and they're thinking about heaven. I'm thinking about you today, that Christ came to give you life and that abundant. And if you're finding satisfaction in other things, your life's not going to be abundant. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be coming back to the same wells, trying to draw the same water, and it's not going to fulfill you. You're going to be continually looking for that next promotion, that next house, that next car, that next shirt with the stupid horse on it. You're going to be looking for that next thing. And understand that next thing will never, ever, ever satisfy you. It is only through Christ. It is only through the gospel. It is only through accepting his gift. It's only through accepting that this gift can only be given and the ultimate giver in Christ. So again, we look at this story, and we see the same issue of two people. We see one trying to fulfill his life in religiosity, and see one trying to fulfill her life in things of the world. Guys, I, I know that in my life, I have tried to fulfill myself before in religiosity. I've gone through points in my life where I've struggled with legalism to the nth degree and was miserable in it. I've shared that with you guys before. That I felt like I had to find myself approved before God when all actuality I'm approved before God because he approves me before himself through his son Jesus. And, and so understand that no matter how good you are, no matter what percent of your income you give to the church, no matter how many times you pray a day, how many times you read your Bible, how many youth outreaches you go to, if you're simply trying to fulfill yourself in those things, they're never going to satisfy. We do those as a response of the satisfaction that we found in Christ. And so you're somewhere on that list in this room if you've never experienced Christ. If you're in here lost, You're somewhere because we all want pleasure. We all want joy. We all want satisfaction. My question to you is, where are you trying to find your satisfaction in? Where are you trying to look for it in? So I'm going to close with this. If you're a Christ follower in this room, focus on the evangelism aspect. But if you are not, my question is, what's stopping you? What's holding you back? Do you think that you've been too bad? 
Do you think that you're a good person and don't need Christ? The Bible says in the book of Romans, for the wages of sin is death. And the Bible also says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a person in this room that does not need the free gift of salvation through Christ Jesus. You don't exist. Every person in this room is in need of that. When we look at verse 15, there's one more thing that I want to share with you. And this was so powerful to me when I read it. Verse 15 says again, I'm going to read it one more time, and then I'm going to draw something out for you. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Why did we say that she had to come there? (laughs) Because she was lonely, because she was ostracized, because she was cast away. She didn't want to be in that place again. How many of you feel like you're lonely and put aside and ostracized and hurt and needing something that is not fulfilling you? I know you never want to find yourself there again. You never want to be there again. So the invitation is to come to Christ. Let him satisfy that need in you. Let him change you and receive that ultimate gift from the ultimate giver. This morning, if you're in that place, if you need prayer for anything, find me or Joe or one of the elders before you leave. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you over this. But I want every single person to leave understanding where your only satisfaction can be found, and that's in the person of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. I know that this was a massive text for us to undertake. But God, I also know that the message is immeasurable. Lord, I pray that you help us all understand. Those of us that have bought into the lie of of Americanism, that, uh, that we're ultimately fulfilled with a house and two cars in the garage and a dog and, and all of these things, Lord, let us know that we'll never find our satisfaction in those things. Lord, but instead our satisfaction is found in you. God, I pray this morning that you break hearts. Those of us that know you, God, I ask that you break our hearts when we abandon you and look for satisfaction in things like material things and our family and all of this stuff. God, just break our hearts and draw us back to you. But Lord, those in this room that do not know you, Lord, I pray that your spirit speak to them and that they respond to you in faith. And that that grace gift that you give us so freely pours over their lives and brings them everything that they need because you do know us and you do know our need. Lord, I ask that this word speak to us daily, that we look to you and look to nothing else. Lord, draw our hearts to you, make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance on you. And may he give you his peace as you go through this week seeking your satisfaction in all of who he is. Thank you.